Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Okay. Um, welcome to our Tuesday night Torah class. I appreciate all you guys being here and all the people that have tuned in, both of them. No, there may be more than that. <laughs> um, let's see. It's been a couple weeks. That's unusual, right? We, uh, we didn't meet last week, so we could go see that movie. Um, how many of you guys went to see the movie? The uh, I forgot. In our... What was the name? In our something in our hands, the yeah, the battle for the victory of Jerusalem. I think that's kind of neat. That was 50 years ago, you know. I can remember actually. I was uh, you know I was alive and of conscious human being at the time that happened. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of neat. That's a neat story. And then the the week before that, I was out of town and John did it. And he did the Torah class, and he said that you folks ended on the first little section in chapter 25. So we're going to start with Leviticus chapter 25, and we'll just kind of look at that first little section, and then we'll move on. There's a possibility that we can finish Leviticus tonight, but maybe not. Um, it, don't push it. It depends on the discussions that get going. But I did make a bunch of... Uh, student workbooks for numbers back there. So if you want to take the numbers, I mean, some of you actually go home and read ahead and answer the questions, and that's a very good thing. So I wanted to make sure that I wasn't uh, a stumbling block for those of you that wanted to do that. So we'll start numbers here, if not next week, certainly the week after. So um, let me begin with prayer. Well, Father God, thank you very much for just for taking care of us. Thank you for this group of people that found time in their busy schedules to come out and look at your Torah. Uh, Torah, your Torah really is life, God. And I just thank you that you're opening it up for us and that we're learning more about you, about how much you love us and about how you'd like us to live our lives. And just bless our discussion tonight as we uh, go through your word and help us to learn from each other. In Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, so we're, we're in Leviticus, toward the end of Leviticus. One thing I always like to do every now and then is say, kind of look, look at things physically. Where are the children of Israel right now? Where are the Israelites? Geographically. Mount Sinai. They're still at Mount Sinai. As a matter of fact, they haven't moved. I think it's something like chapter... 18 in Exodus or something like that. Chapter 18 in Exodus is when they've gotten to Mount Sinai. There's a whole bunch of stuff that happened in Exodus and then there's all of this stuff we've been through in Leviticus, but that entire time they're still there. They haven't moved yet because uh, when we get to Numbers is the first time they move. So all of the stuff that's happened between Exodus 18 up to this point, they're still in one location. I think that's kind of interesting. Um, the other thing I always like to kind of talk a little bit about now Leviticus is 
What's the word mean, the title, Leviticus? By the way, of course, you realize that's not the title that the uh, Hebrews gave it, right? Does anyone know what Leviticus means? Yeah. Vayikra. Well, that's that's Hebrew, and that's fine. Called out. Yeah, uh, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Oh. But Leviticus. The word Leviticus is Latin. Oh. Icus means, Iticus, if you will, means pertaining to, things pertaining to. So what? Levites. It's things pertaining to the Levites. So the book of Leviticus is primarily instructions for the Levites. But so why should it matter to us? John? It really ought to be called the Kohanimites. Kohanimites, Kohom- yeah. Ko- Kohanimicus. <laughs> or Priesticus. Priesticus. Yeah, there you go. Because it really isn't about, it's about the priest more. Yeah, yeah. Particular. And, and that's who we are. Right? That's what we're uh, kingdom of priests. So the, the stuff we're studying is really for us, although we have to make a big effort to try to figure out how it applies since we live 3,500 years later and not in the Middle East and on and on and on. But we've gotten a lot out of that. Anyway, we'll do more of that as we move on. Lisa. Just as an aside, the word Vayikra means and he called. And he called, yeah. In case anybody didn't know. In case anybody didn't know. Well, all the, the Hebrew titles for the books and for the portions are always based on some word in the first line. So, okay. Well, anyway, so here we are in Leviticus 25, and John started with the first seven verses, and I think I'll just review that. I'm sure you had interesting discussion, but it's uh, it's the... I'll read that since it's by way of review, and then we can start reading in earnest here when we get to chapter 8, or verse 8. Yahweh said to Moses on Mount Sinai, this is Leviticus 25, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land that I'm going to give you, and the land itself must observe a Sabbath to Yahweh. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather your crops. But in the seventh year the land is to have a Sabbath rest. A Sabbath to Yahweh. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath here will be food for you, for yourself, your manservant and your maidservant, and your hired worker and the temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and wild animals on your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. Now, so what's the name of this in Hebrew? Shemitah, right? Shemitah. This is the Shemitah year. It's the sabbatical year. It happens every seven years. You do this. I'm sure you guys had this discussion, but just to help me. So do you find any contradiction there where it says, uh, do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines? But then it goes on and it says, whatever the land produces may be eaten. Do you, do you find anything kind of seemingly contradictory about it? Beg your pardon? Ungleaned. Ungleaned. Is that what you said? Okay. Um, the idea is, even though you don't plant anything, don't go out and harvest and set up your little roadside stand and offer it for sale. That's, that's what it's saying. Is that you're, not, this is not, you're not making income. If the, and you all know that with vines and things like that, if you don't tend them, the next year they'll come up with a bunch of stuff, right? 
that, that, that produce you can eat, but you're not to harvest it and uh, try to sell it to others. As a matter of fact, who gets to eat it? Poor. The poor, the people that work for you, you, and the animals. Right? In other words, you basically just don't do anything with your farm. You just let it do whatever it's going to do. And if you, you know, want some stuff, you can go out and, oh, look, there's some grapes over there. Grab some grapes and bring them in and have them for dinner. You can do that, but you don't, you don't do it as your business. You let the land sit. The term we use was fallow. John. So in our discussion earlier, we talked about the guy that <clears throat> was moving his cows every day. Is that... Is that not, does he have to not do that on the seventh year, or is that just a natural thing? That's a is really good question. I don't, I'm not sure. I would sure. think it's more like wheat, something that you do, that mm -hmm. you, cotton or wheat or whatever. Otherwise, just a pasture is just a pasture. Yeah. I think you might want to move your cows from pasture to pasture so they would have something to eat. Yeah, they're not going to But, but you're not. You're, or you have seven year, a year's worth of hay, I guess. They might. You're not, the, the point I was would have made is that the idea is that you can't, uh, butcher some of the livestock, okay? For, for uh, that's, that occurs to me. Maybe I'm making this up, but it occurs to me that the livestock get to, get a one year reprieve. You know, there none of them are going to be uh, dispatched for the purposes of eating. I don't know if I'd agree with that. You, yeah, you, wouldn't, maybe you, wrong. you wouldn't use them to to plow the field, obviously. Sure, sure. You know, the interesting thing is in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in Zuni Elementary, my second grade teacher told us about those years mm -hmm. and she said every seven years we're supposed to let the ground lie fallow mm -hmm. and I don't even know like you know and and she you know I just remember learning that in public I, school you know it's funny because I went to the same kind of school you did as you know right and the, I learned the same thing I learned that one of the things that the it was supposed to be the people that lived in the middle ages discovered was that you could grow crops on a piece of land for seven years six years but yeah. you needed every seventh year or so to let the land, and again, the term was fallow, let the land sit fallow. That way it uh, would regenerate some of the nutrients in the soil. If you just planted mm -hmm. crop after crop after crop after crop, pretty soon there's nothing left. Yeah, we had a good education. Yeah. <laughs> Another New Mexican. <laughs> so we're not yoking up a cow or a bull here on the seventh year. That's my understanding. And we're not yoking it up on the eighth year either. Um, well, on the eighth year, you're allowed to uh, plant, right? On the eighth year, you can, start, you can start your business back up, if you will. So let's say the animals are all unyoked the seventh year. Mm -hmm. So that seventh year, all the animals are eating really good because... He says there's going to be plentiful in harvest, mm -hmm. so the animals are actually fattening up. Yeah. So while the man is reaping on the seventh year, he's going to have some nice fatted calf mm -hmm. at the end of that seventh year for, because he says, I'm going to take care of you how long? Yep. Well, actually three, three years. Three right? years. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I think part of that taking care of him is, the, the livestock got nice and fatted up mm -hmm. uh, so they can have some really good, you know, mm -hmm. kosher kills there on the eighth year. Yep. 
I'm sure there are a lot of, uh, certainly I, you, we've already thought about this probably more than I have. I'm sure there are a lot of little nuances here as to what you can do and what you can't do. I think the idea, though, is to let the land rest. Let's read, read it again and see what it says. It says, do not reap. And the idea for me to reap is to harvest with the idea of selling, if you will. So it says, do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your manservant, your maidservant, and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you, uh, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. So it's whatever the land produces on its own. It's not whatever the land produces because you prune the grapevines and you cultivate and you do the weeding because that's what you're supposed to not do. Mark. I like to put myself in the people's shoes. Okay. So, you know, you're, you're one of the people, the poor people in the land, and you're thinking, oh, man, the Shemitah is coming up. The Shemitah is almost here. We're going to eat good this year. It's going to be a year of plenty for all of us. We're all going to get nice and fed. The owner, he's getting a vacation. Yeah. He's taking a year off. Yep. Worked six years, seventh year. Sabbatical. He's, yep. he's got a, a year of no work. Yep. This is time to have a nice time with family. Mm -hmm. Kids are like, this is great. Daddy's going to be here. He's going to be with us in the house all year. This mm -hmm. is fantastic. Good. I could just see these kinds of things going on in Absolutely. the home. Everybody's thinking about what's coming up. Yep. And these are the nuances, as you say, of the cycle that God has put his people on. Yep. yep. As, uh, there's a, uh, some obvious things that go along with that. First of all, I'd mentioned that the term sabbatical year I first heard in college. And what it was was it was these professors, you know, they would teach. And every few years, they didn't have anything magic about the seventh year. But every few years, they'd take a sabbatical, which basically was time off. They just And I remember I had one of those where I worked. Um, it was basically... Um, their idea of a sabbatical, it turned out it was a life-changing event for me, but uh, I basically asked for time off without pay to go. I wanted, This was the time when we went to live in, in Aqaba, Jordan for a year. And uh, they just thought that was great. That, well, their idea of, of the gift was that, well, we'll hold your job for you till you get back, which was fine. That was fine. Great year. When you spend a year away from your career, it tends to change your focus. You know, as a matter of fact, one of the things they told me when I got back was most people aren't worth a darn when they come back because they've lost their, their drive and their zeal and their enthusiasm because that's, you know, that's all I was doing for years was that job. Took a year off and all of a sudden you find out, my gosh, the world's a lot bigger than I thought. There's a lot more things to be doing than that. Yeah. I would think a lot of that too isn't, you're just, it isn't that you're just taking a year off. It's you may be learning new skills, you may be learning... You may be following, I think the tradition was way back then, like the disciples were following Yeshua during his sabbatical year. Yep. Or at least part of that yep. was anyway. So yeah. they, they would have a teacher with them. Yep. They would be, you know. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. But it helps you keep things in, in I think, maybe a perhaps more realistic focus. It occurs to me that um, it would behoove the people to be very uh, careful with how they 
did their farming and so forth for the six years, mm -hmm. because the ones that did a good job for six years would have plenty. The mm -hmm. ones who kind of slacked off and probably be borrowing from the neighbors. Yep. I'm sure there's something to that. Although, like Mark says, God promised that he'd take care of you if you did this, if you obeyed the rule. He would, he would make sure that your sixth year was good. But there's still a lot to what you say. As a matter of fact, I remember riding, I, I shouldn't go down this road, but driving down the road, and this guy was telling me, he says, you can look at people's farms and you can tell who's a good farmer and who's not. You know, just by looking at the house they live in and the way their barn and their equipments, you know, if it's all stacked around everywhere with weeds growing up through it and, you know, everything just looks a mess, that's probably not a very good farmer. I'm sure it's the same thing back then. Yeah. Anyway, so what's the sabbatical year called in Hebrew? Shemitah, right? Shemitah. And it's every seven years. So, any other thoughts about that? We can move on to... The Hebrew word for seven is Sheva. Right? Sheva or Sheba. So Shemitah is somewhere in there, I suppose. Okay, would somebody like to start in verse 8? And let's see, well, this is a big long thing, so we're just going to read part of it. Um, read through verse 22. If someone would like to read through verse 22, then we'll talk about that. Verse, chapter 25, verse 8 through 22. Okay. Mm. Well, you are to court off, no, you are to count off seven Shabbatot of years, seven times seven years, so that the time is seven Shabbatot of years, 49 years. Then on the tenth day of the seventh month, on Yom Kippur, you are to sound a shofar blast. You are to sound the shofar all throughout your land. You are to make <clears throat> the fiftieth year holy and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It is to be a jubilee to you when each of you is to return to his own property and each of you <clears throat> is to return to his family. That 50th year will be your jubilee. You are not to sow or reap that which grows by itself or gather from the untended vines. Since it is a jubilee, it is to be holy to you. You will eat from its increase out of the field. In this year of Jubilee, each of you will return to his property. If you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you are not to wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the Jubilee, you are to purchase land from your neighbor's hand. He is to sell it to you based on the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of years, you may increase its price or decrease its price in proportion to the fewness of years because he is selling a number of harvests to you. You are not to cheat one another, but fear your God, for I am 
Adonai your God. Therefore, you are to keep my statutes and observe my ordinances and carry them out so that you may live securely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit and you may eat your fill and live there in safety. Now, if you ask, what are we to eat during the seventh year? If, see, we are not to sow nor gather in our increase. Now I will command my blessing to you in the sixth year so that it will yield a harvest sufficient for three years. When you sow during the eighth year, you will still be eating the old stored harvest until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. Okay, thanks. Um, I did what I typically do. I forgot something I wanted to talk about on the Shemitah for just a minute, so I'm going to backtrack, and then we'll come right back here and talk about this. But um, one of the things I thought was kind of interesting was the Shemitah, the sabbatical year, happens every seven years. And how well do you think Israel did on doing that? Not very well. Ask Judah. <laughs> yeah, ask Judah. Um, if you turn to Second Chronicles, why don't you do this? I, I think this is a, a worthwhile exercise. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 36. the last chapter of 2 Chronicles. It's not clear exactly who wrote Chronicles, but a lot of, I think tradition has it that Ezra did. Um, but this is kind of the end. What chapter? Chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And I'm going to start reading in verse 20. Um, this is what this is talking about here. Um, the northern kingdom has long since been dispersed. And so this is the southern kingdom that we're talking about. And the southern kingdom has just been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? And so in verse 20, the very last part here of this of Second Chronicles, it says, He carried into exile to Babylon. The he here is Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? So Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him, and sons until the kingdom of Persia came into power. The Persians, you know, uh, conquered the Babylonians about a number of years later. Um, verse 21, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests all the time of its desolation. It rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word that Yahweh had spoken by Jeremiah. Okay? So, do you know how long, this is the Babylonian captivity, right? That's what this is talking about. It's what's known as the Babylonian captivity. It says, how long did the Babylonian captivity last? Seventy years. Seventy years. And the inference here, it says, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests all the time of its desolation it rested until the seventy years were completed. So, if that's seventy years worth of uh, Shemitahs, how many years did they not do the Shemitah? Oh, the total years. Yeah. 490. 490, right? Because they have a Shemitah every seven years, and God basically is saying here, you owe me 70 years. 
So he must not have done it 70 times. 70 times 7 is 490. They were only around about 1,200, maybe 1,000. So they, they, almost half the time they didn't do this. You can pay me now or you can pay me later. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I'm going to get it I'm eventually. I'm going to get my, get my yeah. too. So I think that's a kind of an interesting point. Um, and you can go read, I've got the note in the book there, you can go read about the word Jeremiah says, this, he predicted this 70 years. Um, another thing this does for you, at least it did for me, is helps me realize that, you know, on God's time scale, you know, 70 years, heck, that's a lifetime for us. For him, it's, it's not much at all. It's like, well, okay, you guys didn't do what I told you to do, so I got to go get my 70 years. So, he got, you know, he, and, and we're talking, you know, 490 years that they hadn't been doing it. Okay, any comments on that? Well, no, I just had a question because it, I didn't hear her read this. It says, in the Jubilee year, you shall return each man to his ancestral heritage. Well, we're going to get to that next. This, okay. I just wanted to, okay. that was a backtrack. If there's no questions about the backtrack, well, we'll move on. Kind of, I thought I was backtracking too, so. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 So, <laughs> now moving on to the Jubilee. What's the Hebrew word for Jubilee? Yovel or Yobel, right? So, this is the Yobel. We have Shemitah and Yobel. Those are brand new terms. We haven't had them before, right? So, when is the Jubilee year? It's after the seventh Shabbat year, after the seventh Shemitah. So, that's what it says right at the beginning. It says, count off seven Sabbaths of years. You didn't tell me there was going to be math involved today. <laughs> seven times seven, so that the seven Sabbaths of years amount to a period of 49 years. So, the 49th year is the seventh Shemitah. Mark. He's better at math than you are. So this is the big debate amongst communities. <clears throat> so whenever you're doing this counting, when does the first year of the next cycle begin? The, the very next year after the 49th or following the 50th? Yep, I, uh, I realize that it's not clear. It's, it's really not clear you can interpret it any way. I think it's the, the year after the 49th. That's what I say. Yeah, that's what I say. It's, that's just my opinion, but that's the way I look at it. What, so, 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 so basically, again, so the year ahead. after the 40, so the 49th. What's the cycle then? 49 the, years or 50 years? Well, the 49th year is a Shemitah, all right? That's, the seven, that's just normally, every seven years we have a sabbatical year. <clears throat> at the end of the seventh sabbatical year, you have another one. So you have two back-to-back. So the cycle is 50. The cycle is 50. And right. the Jubilee means 50, typically. So, Go ahead. So that means you have a, at the end of the seventh, you have a double land set. Yes. You have a double. Double. That's not what you're, you're, you're thinking it's, the cycle's 49, right? Right. So it's 50. It's 50. So it's total of 50. You start over. The 50th year is separate from the 49 years. The 49 years are a counting of seven perfect sevens. Yeah. So the 50th is like an extra day on top of the seven perfect sevens. So my question is, is when do you begin the next counting of the next seven perfect sevens? After the 50th year, or does year one of the next cycle in unity with the, the, the Jubilee? 
I think it's after the 50th year. That's my opinion, but I don't want to, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't divide over it. I, I just think that that, that puts things in 50-year blocks. That's what it does, right? 50 is a much nicer number than 49. <laughs> so that being said, when is the Shemitah year start? I mean, we were just in a Jubilee year last year. Is that correct? Well, it depends on when you start counting. That's the whole problem with this is it depends on when you start counting. Now, if what you... What does Jonathan Kahn say? <laughs> well, if you... Um, if, if you, there's lots of different ways to do it. One, one theory would be to start counting in 1967 mm -hmm. uh, because that's when Jerusalem was uh, liberated. And so that's why that movie came out because 1967 plus 50 is 2017. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's the, the jubilee year for the, you know, the what a, liberation of Jerusalem. And so that's, that would be that's jubilee. But then you could talk about the nation of Israel, which was 1948. And 48 plus 50 is 98, which means they already had one. Um, so I don't know. I'm not sure how they count, and I'm not sure where to start. But I feel like it's, it, Jerusalem kind of feels pretty good to me. Um, so I, I kind of like the idea of it being 2017. But that's just me. You know, the queen of England celebrates jubilees. Jubilee is a very common term, and it always means 50. It's 50 years. That's what a jubilee is. It's like a jubilation. Yeah. And there, one other thing about the two-year thing is I think that's what it means when it says in verse 21 there, I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. This is an uber blessing. Yeah, so you get the seventh year, the eighth year, and as you point out, the first half of the ninth year while you're planting crops. So I think that's, that's what it's saying. So yeah, uh, the Jubilee year, in my way of thinking, is a separate year from the 49th year, and you have two in a row. Now we can, is that clear? Is everybody okay with that? Now we can talk about what it's, the real, the real cool thing about Yovel once every 50 years, not very often, is the way they tie the land to it, right? They, they basically, uh, you probably didn't, you may not have followed on what's going on in, in verses 14 through um, 17, but what they're basically saying is you don't get to sell the land. Now you can sell the crops that are available from this land up until the next jubilee, up until the next 50-year mark. So, and what you do is you sell it based on, I mean, if it's two years before the Jubilee, then you sell the, the land for basically two years worth of crops. If it's 48 years before the next Jubilee, you sell it for 48 years worth of crops. And there's a big difference in the number, right? So you sell the land whose value is based on the number of years until the next Jubilee. And why is that important? Because of what happens on the Jubilee. The land goes back. It goes to back to the original owner. Inheritance. Yeah. So the the way that works is the land never changes hands permanently. If this thing had worked the way God intended it to, today we could go over there and find descendants of all the different tribes in the locations that Joshua set them out in. Right? You'd find them all in that in that same area because God says, you don't, you know, I'm not, don't sell the land. The land belongs to who I've given it to in perpetuity. 
That's exactly what. I, thank you. Can okay. I just make? Yeah, sure, sure. Because that was exactly what I was going to say. It says, "Don't sell the land in perpetuity," mm -hmm. because you, you, because every tribe can get go back to mm -hmm. being on their mm -hmm. own land. Yep, we're going to. Go ahead. May I say just yep. mm -hmm. that is the problem that I see with Judah now, because Judah says, I mean, for I understand why they say this, but they act like they own all of the land of Israel. Mm -hmm. Well, and they technically. They don't. They don't. They don't. Yeah, but uh, you'd have to get pretty far down the road in terms of discussion before you could bring that up. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> but uh, one, thing, one thing I should say, so if, if we say, um, if that's what God intended, why don't we have that? I bet you can answer that question. Well, we got kicked out. The, we broke the contract. Yeah, we broke the contract. God said all of this. He says, if you will obey me, if you will keep my laws and my in, decrees, this is the way it will work for you. Did in, they? In no. perpetuity as long as you keep the contract. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> so there's different types of ownership. Mm -hmm. The title holder, never technically it never leaves Yah, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. <clears throat> We're going to read that in just a minute. Oh, okay. I'm just that, saying. No, that's okay. Well, the, 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 what you're selling is use of the land. That's what you're selling. Yeah. And in, in technical like terms, lease. that's much more of a lease than it is uh, changing hands. It's really a lease. However, a 50-year lease is a pretty long lease. And I think that's a lot what we're doing right now. Do we really own our own property? Well, the government sure doesn't think so. If you, don't, if you stop paying <laughs> property taxes, the people who own, yeah. who, who have a better claim are going to say, no, yeah. I don't care if you don't own any more mortgage, mortgage yeah. on it. Yeah. So we, what do we own? We own equity in the land, for the property. Yeah, well, you own the right to use the property for a certain number of years but or until you break the contract. My point is there's, you can't just say, what do you mean ownership? It's, yeah. it's a little more complicated yeah. than that. Well, God makes a point here in just another paragraph. He says, look, the land's really mine. You know, I'm going to allow the Israelites to be on this land uh, for as long as they um, live up to their end of the agreement. Which, as I point out, as you know, they didn't. Um, to add to Lisa's comment, the land we're talking about includes a lot more than the current Israel yep. land. I mean, it, yep. it goes over into the yeah. Let's talk about that because you know the, into the <laughs> well east of the Jordan and yep. up we, north and we went through and south. we um, uh, we went through the book of Joshua and in, in one of the. Um, studies that, that happens on Shabbat. Ralphie and I went through the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, you basically, um, you know, each, it, it tells all about the tribes that went across the Jordan and they, what they took and the land they got. It describes it all in great detail. And you're right. Um, there's a whole bunch of land north and east of the Sea of Galilee. So it's over there in the middle of Jordan and Syria that belong to uh, Gad, half of Manasseh, Reuben. and Reuben. Is that what it was? Okay. So they were, they were all on the east side of the Jordan. Plus there was the other tribes all north of uh, Jerusalem. The only tribes, there were essentially three. Um, there was Judah was the biggest landholder down there south. They held, they held just south of Jerusalem all the way down to Elat. Simeon 
held land that was entirely within Jerusalem's, or within Judah's, excuse me. And finally, over time, Simeon kind of got assimilated into Judah and kind of disappeared. And then Benjamin. Benjamin actually owns the land that has Jerusalem in it. Benjamin's land is on the border between Judah and Israel. So uh, that's, and so what's today, there's a little bit of the stuff that's up there in the, uh, in what used to be the northern ten tribes. There's all of Judah, pretty much, um, and most of Benjamin. But, you know, the Palestinians are over there saying, no, 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 this piece is mine. So they don't have any concept of this. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, I think the thing that's interesting is the way God intended for ownership to work in Israel. The way He intended for land, and you, you're right, the word ownership is in quotes because it's really not. But He basically said, as long as you'll live up to your end of the agreement that you promised you would live up to at Mount Sinai back in Exodus. <laughs> as long as you do that, then I'll make sure that you can, this land will stay yours. And, it'll, and we'll read some more about what happens here and why it should, uh, why there would be reasons for different owners to want to sell their land. And we'll talk about that. But I just wanted to make sure that concept was clear. Have you got any thoughts about that? John. So one thing you need to understand, or at least I come to the understanding, there's not multiple versions of the Jubilee going. There's one. Everybody's doing this. We're all on the same page, the same calendar. <laughs> yes, yes. So, you know, if it's like you said, two years before you make an adjustment, every it, it's not just that land. It's the whole country is That's right. tied to that. That's right. As a matter of fact, I'm sure that life gets much more interesting as you get nearer and nearer the Jubilee, Right. Because you can go out and you can, quote, buy land, unquote, for real, real cheap. Uh, but you're only buying it for a year or two. <laughs> okay, let's go on. Let's read some more and talk some more about this because we've got some more interesting things here. Um, does somebody want to read from verse 23? Um, 23 to 43. 23 to 43. Alfonso, it's nice to see you. And the land is not to be sold beyond reclaim, for the land is mine, for you are sojourners and settlers with me. And provide for redemption for the land and all the land of your possession. When your brother becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and his redeemer, a close relative, comes to redeem it, then he shall redeem what his brother sold. And when the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and return the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he shall return to his possession. And if his hands has not found enough to give back to him, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it into the year of Yobel. And it shall be released in the Yobel, and he shall return to his possession. And when a man sells a house in a walled city, then his right of redemption shall be at the end of the year after it is sold. His right of redemption lasts a year. But if it is not redeemed within a complete year, then the house in a walled city shall be established beyond reclaim to the buyer of it throughout his generations. It is not released in the Yobel. The houses of villages, however, which have no wall around them, are reckoned as the field of the country 
a right of redemption belongs to it, and they are released in the Obel. As for the cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities of their possession, the Levites have a right of redemption forever. And that which is redeemed from the Levites, both the cell of the house and the city of its possession, shall be released in the year of Yobel, because the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession in the midst of the children of Israel. But the field of the open land of their cities is not sold, for it is their everlasting possession. And when your brother becomes poor and his hand has fell with you, then you shall sustain him, and he shall live with you like a stranger or sojourner. Take no interest from him or profit, but you shall revere your Elohim, and your brother shall live with you. Do not lend him your silver on interest, and do not lend him your food for profit. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim to give you the land of Canaan to be with your Elohim. And when your brother who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, do not make him serve as a slave, but as a hired servant. As a settler, he is with you and serves you until the year of Yobel. And then he shall leave you and he and his children with him and shall return to his own clan, even return to the possession of his father. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Mitzrayim. They are not sold as slaves. Do not rule over him with harshness, but you shall revere your Elohim. That's good. Boy, you're a good reader. Um, okay, let's, let's talk about these. There's several things to, to note here. First of all, if you go back up to verse 33, 23, he makes this really clear. He says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. Who's talking? Yeah. God. The land is mine. And you're just aliens and my tenants. Okay? Throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. Yeah. So I think that's pretty cool. He's, his view of you is, you know, you're, as you said, an alien or a sojourner. Yeah. And then it goes on at the end of the portion of verses we just read. You have to treat the sojourners with respect to the respect that they deserve. That they deserve. Yeah. So it's... But it goes around, comes around. Yep. Kind of <laughs> he says, I'm the example, is right. kind of what he's saying. But he says, he makes it real clear here, the land is his. But he's providing them full use of it for as long as they keep their contract. Right? And he goes on to talk about it, says, if one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, some or all, uh, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. All right. So how does that work? Yeah. I just want to go back to another point. Okay. So if we're a priest, a nation of priests, to judge the nations, we technically on earth are vagabonds. We don't have title to the property. We don't own property, which yeah. gives us the ability to, to not be, we, we don't have, well, I'm just I'm speculating here, but we might, the theory is we could judge better because we, we're, we don't, we're not, yeah. we don't have the interest in it that everybody else does. I yeah, it's kind of I guess, it, you know, you could, I think I see where you're going. You can certainly talk about that. How many times have you been admonished, even, you know, from in churches where they say, you know, don't realize that all the things you think you have are not really yours. They're gifts from God. They're, they're on loan to you from Him. And, so, and if you think of everything you have that way, it puts a whole different... You can judge yourself and your actions and other people better. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. It, uh, you know, to... Well, it keeps you from being owned by your property. Well, it does. 
which is a typical American problem. Yep. Question, because I brought this up you know, to all my Jewish friends on Facebook, because you know, Jews will say, okay, we always have the right to land. You know what I mean? We, it's our land. And, and one of my friends, she's, she's cool, you know, she's my friend. And, and I said, you know, we don't own the land. It's God's, and we, have the, we can only live there if we obey him. Yep. If we're, doing Torah, if we're not doing what he says, then mm -hmm. we, he can do what he wants. Well, but then I was wondering, too, because where it says in Joel, they march over cities, they, this might be getting on a sidetrack, but... They march over cities, they climb over walls, great is the army that carries out his word. It, to me, it seems like, like kind of what the Muslims are doing, you know, to a certain extent. Like, I was just wondering, like, um, when the boundaries are broken like that, when people are allowed to infiltrate, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but that, I think... Is that a problem? Well, I, mean, I think you, uh, you're not looking at it from God's perspective. Because what God has said is, this is the way I want it to work. And it will work this way. I will bless you, he says, and we'll read more about that, as long as you keep your covenant. But when you don't, let me finish. Right. When you don't, all bets are off. And you're going to get vomited out. The land is going to vomit you out. And you're going to get thrown to the four corners of the wind. And uh, Let me go on. He, he says all of that. And then he says, but in the end, if you see the error of your ways, if you come back, if you realize that the Torah is for you and that you repent, and, and he's not talking individually here. Well, he is, but he's talking corporately too. So what he says, he promises to restore Israel, Israel the nation. But it has to happen on a corporate basis. It's not going to happen by just individual by individual. Right. That's, I know that. That's what I was saying. That's kind of what I was saying. I was saying that um, I don't mean we individually have the right to live there. I'm just saying that if we're, okay, like right now Israel is not following all the commands of Yah. We know that, right? Well, they're probably not, but the real question is where's their heart? And again, it's hard to do this because you can't separate the individual from the nation. But I don't know. I kind of have this feeling that um, a large number of Jews that live in Israel today are a little more, let me just say, God-aware than we might think. Certainly well, more I than already, a lot of Americans. I already know that because I have a ton of friends in Israel. But okay. I just mean what I'm saying is that when they have the gay pride parades in Jerusalem That's wrong. and stuff... That's that not, is wrong. That's not and, what God and, wants. And I'm just saying that they, at this point, they have a secular government, which I know a lot of my Orthodox friends don't agree with that. You know, they, I mean, they don't agree with some of the things that the seculars are doing. But I mean, I just mean it still affects the entire nation. Of course it does. Of course it does. Right. You can look at the same thing happening in our country, right? There, yes. In our lifetime, that's what I'm saying. In that's our lifetime, we, is Israel's really no different than any other nation in that regard. Well, it's, of course not. Except that God has promised that if Israel, that Israel will be restored well, we because they be will yeah. repent. Yes, because so that's why what why do you and I sit here and argue over things we agree on? Well, see, that's what I didn't know because it was you that said you thought I thought you thought I wasn't saying that. I no, guess. No. 
I guess I was thinking that you were saying, never mind what I thought, because I don't even know what I thought. That's okay. We were off on a little rabbit trail there. Let me see, where were we? <laughs> okay, so this idea of redeeming the land, who's supposed to redeem the land? If, if you get poor, you're, a, you're an Israelite and you're out there, and I, I always like to, my own mind works these stories out. You know, you get, you get to drinking a little too much and get some poker game you shouldn't be in and you get the betting goes way up and you lose your land, right? So what happens? Your kinfolk. Mm -hmm. Your kinfolk. Your kinfolk. Your good uncle or whatever, someone who is your relative, your relative is supposed to come bail you out. Now, in terms of bailing you out, it... Uh, He's supposed to um, pay off your debt, but then you're indebted to him, right? And, and relatives are relatives. Uh, hopefully, you'd rather be indebted to a relative than some guy who's not a relative. In uh, theory. Yeah, in theory. And, 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 and the admonishment here is, you know, do this without interest. You know, don't, don't be mean to him because, well, that, the real reason is because someday you may be in that position. <laughs> well, and you were. You yeah. were in that situation in Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, that's a good point. That's the other thing he always says. He says, let me read in verse 25. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. If, however, a man has no one to redeem it for him, he doesn't have any relatives, or maybe his relatives are in the same position, but he himself prospers and acquires sufficient means to redeem it, then he's to do that. He, the way he does it is he goes to the guy that, that now owns it, owns in quotes, and he says, look, you got four years till the next Jubilee, and at so many, you know, and he can even do it this way. He can say, when you paid for it back on this date, you paid this much, and there were this many years. Now there's only this, that's so much per year. Now there's only this many years, and so I can pay you this much money and take it back. And God says, that's, that's legal. That's the way it has to work. So you don't get to, you don't get to, you know, buy some piece of property for a dollar and a half and turn around and sell it to some guy for 10,000 bucks. That's not what it works. You know, it's, it's calculated and everything is fair. You're not, this is not a, a land speculation agreement here. Uh, but that's how it works. And then it finally goes on to say if, if he um, can't do that, um, in verse 28, but if he does not acquire the means to repay him, what he sold will remain in possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. And it will be returned in Jubilee, and then he can go back to his property. So Jubilee is like getting the uh, uh, get-out-of-jail card on the Monopoly game or uh, advance directly to go or whatever. It's the, it's, uh, you know, it, I love it. It's like, okay, you know, it's start over again. In, in government, they call it zero-based budgeting. You know, just uh, everything starts from scratch. All the land that was originally belonging to your clan is now belongs to your clan again, and you can start over. How many jubilees are you likely to see in your lifetime? One or two. One, one. maybe two. But I guarantee if you see two, you're not going to be involved in one end or the other. You know, you're either going to be too young to know what's going on on the first end, or you're going to be too old for anybody to care on the other end. So basically, you got one jubilee. Okay, so you're going to get to, to feel this. You're going to get to see what it's like for everything to go back to the beginning and start over. That's got to be cool. There's no place I know that that, that happens. Yeah. Well, I, that's a nice <laughs> safety net. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the goal is not to be in that situation to begin with. Well, yes. The Torah, the problem with a lot of people, I think, when they read the Torah, the Torah is defining the edges. Yes. And you don't want to look at, the, you need to know where the edges are 
but you need to be in the middle. concerned about what the edges are creating. The, the, the whole, you know, the, it's not the fence of the pasture that you care about, it's the pasture. Yeah, fair point. If you will. Fair point. I like that. Okay. But we're getting an idea of how this thing works. Then we go into these little details. This is more of the fence, as you say. Uh, verse 29 says, uh, If a man sells a house in a walled city, he redeems the right of redemption for a full year after its sale. During that time he may redeem it. If it is not redeemed before a full year has passed, then the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to the buyer and his descendants. It is not to be returned on the jubilee. But houses, okay, let me just stop there for a minute. So houses in walled cities are different. They're basically exempt from this. So uh, you buy a house in a walled city. The guy that sells you the house has a year to come back to you and say, okay, okay, I made my money back. I didn't need to sell it or I've changed my mind or whatever. And basically he can pay you, he can pay back what the buyer paid for it and get his house back. At the end of a year, can't do it anymore. Once the guy has lived in the house or owned the house for over a year, then that house is his permanently and he can give it to his kids if he wants. So the year of Jubilee doesn't apply to houses in walled cities. So yeah, we're contrasting city life with country life. Yes, we are. Okay. Yeah. We're also, when you think of a house, what's, what's the difference between farmland and a house primarily? What? Planting. Income. Income, yes. Uh, farmland, you can make money on. A house, you probably can't. You know, a house is a nice place to live. And again, us good old Americans, that's all we think of, right? You know, well, I need a bigger house, right? A house with a swimming pool, whatever. You know, it, it, we think about the house, but the house is not a way to make money. As a matter of fact, the house is a way to spend money, right? It's, uh, so um, there's a big difference between... Um, land, farmland, and a house. So in a way, it makes sense. And, and also houses, pff, a well-placed bulldozer and the house is gone, right? So uh, houses aren't as permanent as land. The land, while it can be uh, not taken care of for a long time, is still usable land theoretically. You know, you may have to do a lot of work, but you can, you can begin to make something off that land. Well, I have a question how that applies to modern day because I'm sure they didn't have as big a cities like as Tel Aviv or Haifa or, you know, mm -hmm. even Jerusalem. And so are those considered walled cities? Well, the, back then, we're going to get to that because the, the next paragraph or the next uh, verse after that said, uh, well, verse 31 says, But houses in villages without walls around them are to be considered as open country, and they can be redeemed and they are returned in the Jubilee. In other words, a farmhouse, a house sitting out, in the middle of a bunch of land that is farm farmland is uh, is part of the jubilee stuff. It's it's redeemable. So so the difference is really the wall. That's what it says. You know, walled cities, houses in walled cities, you can sell. Houses out in the open. That's what it said. Out in the open on farmland is considered part of the farmland. And so you can again, you don't have to sell all your land. You can say, look, I've got these. 45 acres out here and there's one house over here. Um, I'm going to sell the house and keep the 45 acres or 44 of them and go build you another house. You could do that if you want to, but that, that piece of land goes back to you at Jubilee. That house that has a piece of land on it goes back to you at Jubilee. So what's the big deal about the walled city? That's really what the question is. 
John, well, John's going to talk, and then we'll, well talk about so that. So who's hanging out in the walled cities? Okay, that's a good question. Who is hanging out in the walled cities? The Levites. No, no, we get to them in a minute. Well, uh, they're more often to be in there, like for sure they're in the cities of... Uh, the non-Levite cities. Yeah, cities of refuge. Well, yeah, but that's coming up. That's okay, not but that. I, well, who is it then? I mean, maybe you. Well, it's it's urban dwellers. It's the it's the merchants. It's the you know the money changers, the bankers. Right, uh, but there's those but kind of people. It's that's a job. I mean, it's a, it's sure. a profession. It's, it's nothing wrong it is with what it. it is. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, but I tell you what, you could make a strong argument for ninety percent of the people that live in cities, even today, actually add very little value to the human existence. I mean, they may get tons and tons of money. They may make where, great where do, salaries. Where do you live? Well, I mean, uh, I'm kidding. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying, you know, that's up to the individual to figure out what he wants to do with his life. He's, that's right. He's going to make money in the city or out in the land, whatever. Um, but to just dismiss, I know I'm not saying you are, but people are in cities. They're not there because. They got nothing else to do. It's because they think they can make some money doing whatever they need. Uh, they need uh, to do yeah. merchandise, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Banking. I agree. I agree. Government. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, I think uh, what we're talking about is that really in the jubilee, it wouldn't apply to people in the walled cities because, say, they were a smith. There was no jubilee for the smith where, okay, you, you take, or Shemitah, where you take a, a year off. Well, now that's a good thought. I don't know and, about yeah. And what Mark was saying, uh, yeah, you know, it'd be great. You have a whole year to do nothing. Well, I think what they were doing is probably patching up the, the barn, probably making repairs to the house that they hadn't had time during the mm -hmm. planting times and the harvesting times. Honeydews, honeydews. Yeah, well, honeydews plus. <laughs> plus. Well, but you, you know, one of the things. Home you, improvements, yeah. One of the things you said though was that, I don't. I mean, you implied yeah. that the people in the cities and a Smith is a good example. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't have a Shemitah year. I'm not sure. I mean. Well, yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah you do. Uh, I don't know. Or that's, weavers. Yeah, or, you that's, know. that's a good question. I don't have a good answer for that, yeah, but I understand I think, what you're saying. I think the, the, the sabbatical was talking strictly about the land. About the land. And um, That's a very good I question. I know the discussion know has that. really entered into some of the places I've been when they talk about the tithing. Uh -huh. You know, they say, well, oh, no, it's just if you're a farmer, you got to, you know, the, <laughs> the tithe doesn't apply. Um, well, let me, let me just push back on it in just one little way. Let's, back in these times, um, the, the most important jobs in society were the farmers. Because the farmers and the ranchers, if you want to call them that, the people that made food to eat, because that was the big deal. Nowadays, you know, we got people that make computer chips and televisions and all that kind of stuff. And like I say, in my opinion, those are way up here in terms of needs, you know, but yet society has gotten structured in such a way that those are the things that people get paid the most money for. So um, I think this may be a more realistic way of looking at it, even though it's far from the way, I mean, it's difficult for us to conceive of because, I mean, one of the most unglamorous jobs in society today is a farmer. 
And it shouldn't be that way, if you ask me. But, John. So the question is, does the Jubilee affect the Smith? Yeah. And yeah. de facto, no, because, or yeah, right, the land Sabbath. If you don't have much land, it's like the rule. There's the rule, but if it doesn't apply to me, it doesn't apply to me. Yeah, yeah. So I have de to facto, say, it doesn't. It, it, yeah. it has no effect on them. Yeah, I guess. Well, he can go out to the land. He, there's nothing that says he couldn't save up. Who knows? It, it, it may be a, it may be a bumper, not just a bumper crop, but a bumper economy. Yeah. And that everybody's going to do well that year. I don't know. He could uh, yeah. he could save up money for for doing whatever he wants to. Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying, as the, the as far as the commandments dealing with the land, it only applies to people who have land. Mm -hmm. Fair point. Fair point. And and you know the question was, so what's what's so special about the cities with walls? Cities with walls were number one large, and number two centrally governed. Right? Because in order to have a wall around your city, you had to have a government structure of such complexity and magnitude that they could exact the taxes to build the wall. Right? So it's, uh, that's, that's why they had walled cities, because every year or two, some big marauding you know, band of somebody would come through and level the place and rob everybody and murder a bunch of people, and the walls were to protect you. Right? So in order to build that wall and to have that protection, you'd have to have a government structure that you paid taxes to so they could afford to build the wall and keep the army that's going to walk around on the ramparts and all that kind of stuff. So oh, a walled city implies a, a complex society, whereas a farmhouse doesn't. A farmhouse out there in the middle of nowhere is just some guy trying to make a living. Well, that was kind of my question, though, because, like... Tel Aviv. We'll just put that as an example. That doesn't have a wall around it. Well, but that's modern. It's, it, it's I tell so, you what, so Tel what Aviv has got a whole bunch of policemen. It has government. It has a whole bunch of policemen. It has a whole bunch right. of airplanes and that fly so over. So you would still call that a wall. It might, that's my question. Yeah. Is you would still call that a walled city, right? I think so. I kind of think so, too, but I just wanted to check and see well, if anybody else. Uh, don't, that. you know, don't. Uh, don't worry, uh, I won't. Say, well, no, don't, uh, don't think I really know what I'm talking about. I'm just kind of making it up as we go. We're discussing this, right? We're trying to discover what it means. Janice has got something. Uh, I'm in agreement with you, Jerry. I think that a walled city, um, a walled city implies there's a government and, a, and it's a kingdom and there's a king that has jurisdiction over a people. Mm -hmm. So I believe that that's the difference between the walled city and the villages. Mm -hmm. there's, there's definitely a a kingdom and a structure, an authority, a, mm -hmm. a government in place. Yep. One of the things that happens if you live in out in the middle of nowhere, you know, out in the rural hinterlands, is you're much more self-sufficient because you don't have the government to rely on. You know, heck, you don't have supermarkets either. You know, you you have to you have to learn how to live on what you've got around, which again is something that most of us in this country are woefully ignorant about. So obviously a walled city um, was built to protect mm -hmm. the things inside the city from things outside the city. A lot of times it was built by kings, as she mentioned. But I remember uh, just a week or two ago reading something from um, one of Polly's relatives in New Mexico in the 30s. And they were transplants from Italy, had been just living here a short time. And she noted in her diary that as a little girl, um, 
some gypsies showed up in a wagon and just the dad was off in the town and they came and raided everything in their garden, everything they were growing, however big it was, just completely took everything they wanted and then some, loaded up the wagon and took off. And it was just the mom and, and the daughter that was at the house. So again, they had something that they needed to protect but couldn't protect it. And people just showed up and took whatever they wanted. Yeah. So this is a lot of times why maybe some people chose to live in the walled city because they were tired of those kind of bandits bandits raiding and taking what they have. Yep, I think that's exactly the case. That's, that was the thing that first enticed people to live in cities, in walled cities, was, was that, is the fact that they got tired of being, you know, it, like I say, minding their own business, and once every few years, somebody just roars through there, <laughs> wipes them all out. Uh, the one example that I can remember is uh, in Jericho, in the... Um, what was the harlot's name? Uh, Rahab. 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 And she hid the, she hid the guys in the, up in the roof where yep. they had the flax. So they must have gone out to work in the farm area and, and brought in the, the flax yeah. or yeah. grain or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so they were living in the city and yet working out in the Yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of that. Farm, yeah. yeah, they probably had to commute every day on the freeways. Well, we can think of the walled cities like Tel Aviv that doesn't have what we see a physical wall, but yet the, the government protects to the certain boarding, city yep. limits, yes. Yeah. So it's still a walled city in, in, in some what sense. we're discussing. Yep, yep, I agree. So... Um, regarding this story, I just really feel like there's a prophetic meaning that we are missing. And, you know, because we don't have a walled city around us. I mean, we just can't really say the mountains are a wall around us, you know, here in the valley. But I really feel like there's a prophetic meaning, a spiritual meaning to this. And um, the, because the, the walled city implies the, the hecht, the chet, you know, um, and the chet is the wall of protection. And we are in the hecht, the wall of protection in Yahweh's kingdom. So we are in the walled city when we are in Yahweh's kingdom. And because we, we are um, also kings and priests, and we all have our own kingdom as a king, um, we have our own kingdom, and we all have our own jur jurisdiction and authority, and our um, and somebody to uh, to lead. And we're also followed. We're we also follow the King of all kings. Mm -hmm. So I believe that we all have our our kingdom, and we are all in this kingdom of Yahweh, surrounded by His wall of protection. Okay. So therefore, that, we, we are in. We are able to inherit this land. Okay. Let that might might fit better our, as well with this next paragraph. Let's read this next paragraph. Um, it says, verse 32, um, the Levites always have the right to redeem their houses in the Levitical towns which they possess. So the property of the Levites is redeemable. That is, a house sold in any town they hold and is to be returned in the Jubilee because the houses and towns of the Levites are their property among the Israelites. But the pasture land belonging to their towns must not be sold. It is their permanent possession. So these Levite towns, there are, what is the number 40? 42. 
32, I think. 42, yes. I, I don't remember. 42. It's somewhere between 32 and 40 <laughs> uh, are towns that the Levites control, okay? And they're called cities of refuge. And we'll talk more about them when we get to numbers. But uh, those Levitical cities are, um, the, the property there is redeemable. The property there is not to be sold uh, in perpetuity. And the reason for that, it says here, is because that's all that the Levites own. That's the Levites' uh, inheritance is, is those towns. Yeah. So as a general rule, living in the cities, according to the Torah, is usually not a good thing. Well, I've often felt that. Right. I mean, I mean it's, it's yeah. you know, the, the cities are, are not, and what I'm getting at is, the walls is your own, you're adding, you're making your own protection less dependent on Yah. Yeah. Where if you're out in the land, you have a higher dependency yeah. on Yah. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, you know, it's just my opinion, but. To sort of back up what Janice was saying, you know, it says that, you know, that psalm that says, the sons of man take refuge, it, it actually means the sons of man find inheritance and, the you know, find inheritance from, you know, some rich person in the shadow of his wings and that's why we sit at the table with him you know I think that there's something to be said for that but but it's still you know I mean we still have to carry out what God says about the land yeah well you know, but it's an interesting it's kind of it is a lot a of this stuff is there's 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 room for all kinds of uh, applications and interpretations here because we don't really have any good historical example you know, um, I, I think this is what God intended, and I don't have any reason to doubt that they may have done this a few times. <laughs> but that's no indication they did it very often. And uh, so I guess my feeling is, is that we can sit here and kind of uh, imagine what it must have been like, but we really don't have a lot of good reasons. And then what you say is, you know, a lot of it is probably geared to the idea of making our uh, reliance and dependence on God to be at the forefront of our thoughts. And mankind naturally does exactly the opposite, right? That's why they build walls around cities, so that uh, they can depend on their own, uh, themselves for their protection and not on God. Mm -hmm. uh, Numbers 35, 6. Mm -hmm. And among the cities which you shall give unto the Levites, there shall be six cities for refuge, which you shall appoint for the manslayer, that he may flee thither. And to them you shall add 40 and 2. 40 and 2. So, so there's 42 plus 6. Okay, 48. So I was wrong on both counts. <laughs> 48 cities of refuge, but that's the ones oh, that they're talking about. There's only 6 cities of refuge, but 42 of them are... Uh, okay, 6 cities of refuge and then 42 other cities that belong to the Levites. Right. Okay, thank you. Yep, uh, thank you. Okay, let's see, where did we stop? We went to clear to 43. So verse 35 goes on, says, If one of one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident so he can live among you. Do not take any interest from him. And, um, but fear your God so that your countrymen may continue living among you. Fear your God. What's the idea there? motivated to do his commandments. I yeah, guess. I guess the point being he's saying you have a position of superiority over this guy, right? You can obviously rub his nose in the dirt and make his life miserable. Don't do that. 
That, that's what I get out of that sentence. You, know, you do that to him, he's going to do that to you. Yeah, if he doesn't, I will, God speaking. You know? uh, so don't charge him any interest and don't, don't be a pain in his side. Just fear God. Because, exactly, because one of these days you could be in his boat. You must, not, uh, see, you must not lend him money on interest or sell him food at a profit. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So he's, again, he's basically saying, don't, don't be selfish. Yeah. So I own you, in other words. That last statement, that's the whole point. Yeah. You have no authority. You, you can't claim sovereignty because I saved your sorry you know what. <laughs> yeah, if it weren't for me, you wouldn't be here. Exactly. Yeah. So you know how that's, that works. There's yeah. no reason you can't treat yeah. other people the yeah. same way. Boy, I tell you what, if ever there was a good physical example of treat others as you would have them treat you, that's it. Right? That's essentially what that's saying. Let me get this last paragraph and then we'll move on. If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. Uh, he is to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you. He is to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he and his children are to go be released and go back to his own clan and to the property of his forefathers. Because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. So this is all... You can't sell them because you don't have the title over them. I do. <laughs> That's right. Um, if there's no other discussion about that, why don't we read from verse 44 to the end of the chapter? Anybody want to do that? Your slave and your maidservant whom you may own from the Gentiles who surround you, from among them you may purchase a slave or maidservant, also from among the children of the residents who live with you, from them you may purchase, from your family that is with you whom, you, whom they begot in your land, and they shall remain yours as an ancestral heritage. They shall hold them as a heritage for your children after you inherit as a possession. You shall work with them forever. But your brethren, the children of Israel, a man with his brother, you shall not subjugate him through hard labor. If the means of a sojourner who resides with you shall become sufficient and your brother becomes impoverished with him, and he is sold to an alien who resides with you or to an idol of a sojourner's family. After he has been sold, he shall have a redemption. One of his brothers shall redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin shall redeem him, or a relative from his family shall redeem him. Or if he, his means become sufficient, he shall be redeemed. He shall make a reckoning with his purchaser from the year that he was sold to him unto the jubilee year. The money for, of his purchase shall be divided by the number of years. He shall be regarded with him like the years of a laborer. If there are yet many years, he shall repay his redemption accordingly from the money of his purchase. And if there are few years left until the jubilee year, he shall reckon that with him. According to his years, he shall repay his redemption. He shall be with him like a laborer hired by the year. 
He shall not subjugate him through hard labor in your sight. If he has not been redeemed by these means, then you shall go out in the jubilee year, he and his children with him. For the children of Israel are the servants to me. They are my servants, whom I have taken out of the land of Mitzrayim. I am Yehovah, your God. Okay, so this section from 44 to the end of the chapter deals with non-Israelites in this situation, right? Um, the first thing it says is, uh, if you want slaves, you can buy them. Where do you get them? Go to from one. your non-Israelite. Yeah, from, from your non-Israelite neighbors. Yeah. You go down to Walmart. No, anyway, <laughs> you... Uh, and it says you can, you can even inherit them. You can give them to your offspring and stuff like that. And that's always kind of a, people kind of go, ooh, that's not a very good thing to do. But um, it, was, it was the way the economy worked back then, you know. So you know what the solution to that is? What? Become an Israelite. <laughs> there you go. Why well, not? <laughs> Were, yeah. Does this apply to the mixed multitudes? Yeah, Absolutely. Does Absolutely. this apply to the mixed multitudes? Well the, mixed, well, the mixed multitudes that have uh, taken on the covenant, no. Right. They're yeah. Israel. They're yeah. adopted into Israel. Yeah. yeah. If, if you like the Torah law form that Israel is operating under, yeah. and the liberty you get by becoming a citizen of yep. the kingdom of Israel, join up. Yep. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. As a matter of fact, I'll bet you, see, I don't know how to put this nicely, but that uh, a lot of people converted <laughs> when they, a lot of Gentiles converted when they found themselves in this position, right? Well, and who knows? Who was who their boss? Who owned them before that? Were yeah. they as, were they as um, uh, respectful as the, their ones, the, the Israelites should, at least as the Israelites yeah. should have been towards them? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, if the Israelites are behaving the way God would have them behave, then they should be treating them in such a way, they should be like, Eleazar. You know, Eleazar uh, was a Gentile who uh, was discovered, if you will, found by Abraham, and he basically became so, um, he admired Abraham and the way Abraham ran his life and Abraham's God so much that he became a bondservant. Why would I leave this place? Yeah, why would I ever want to leave this place? <laughs> this, is, this is too good. So I'm, I'm sure you're right, yeah. You know, just a little story about this. When I was in Florida, I went to a Bible college called Florida Bible College, and, and I worked for these people. I, I worked as a maid on Miami Beach, and I worked for these people, the Cohens, and when they found out that I have a Jewish descent, they said, don't tell anybody you're our, <laughs> don't tell you anybody you're our housekeeper. Tell them you're our friend. <laughs> they said, because you are our friend. Yeah. They were really good to me, but you know, yeah. still. That is kind of like this situation. Yeah. And it goes on in verse 47 here, and it talks about, uh, this is the other side of the coin. If an alien or a temporary resident among you becomes rich, and one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells himself to the alien living among you, or to a member of the alien's clan. Okay, so this is the other side of the coin. This is a Gentile that's living within your community, if you will, or at least near enough to be uh, accessible. And then you, as an Israelite, went out and did something stupid or got in trouble and became poor. And you had to sell yourself to this Gentile. This is the worst of all worlds, right? Because at least if you were to sell yourself to one of your fellow Israelites, 
you could reasonably expect to be well treated. If you sell yourself to a Gentile, who knows? You know, all bets are off because they're not, as you point out, they're not under the same contract that the Israelites are. Uh, but what God says here, He says, contract or no contract, they're not allowed to mistreat uh, Israelite Well, you need, to go re- you need to go redeem them. Yeah, your job is to redeem them. Right. And not only that, but if they're, you're the Gentile has to give them up at Jubilee, even though they don't care anything about Jubilee, theoretically. Right? That's what it says down here. It says, uh, uh, it says, when you go to redeem him, it's got all the math there. When you go to redeem him, look at how much he paid for him and go calculate the years and all this kind of stuff. But it basically says, um, in verse 54, even if he is not redeemed in any of these ways, he and his children are to be released, be released in the year of Jubilee. So, for the, and it says, for the Israelites belong to me amen. as servants. By what authority? They are my servants, not his. Exactly. By what authority <laughs> could someone go do that? Well, you, the guy who owns them is this guy named, or this person named Yahweh. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. That's, the, that's the terms and conditions that we're operating under. Yeah. Well, if it's precisely because he's a, he's, we're owned by, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Uh, but it's an unusual case because it's basically saying even though these laws have not been agreed to and theoretically shouldn't apply to these non-Israelites, they do. So, this particular one does. So and, there, go ahead. So there are some situations where religious laws of religion trump secular laws. That's a good point. I think there may be, the be a whole bunch of cases where that doesn't apply. Yeah. But there are some cases where. So if you are successful in defending whatever it is you're doing back to your strongly held religious beliefs and convictions, you've got a pretty powerful argument because now you're not dealing with me. You're dealing with my master. Yeah. Who's God? Right. Yeah. It's interesting because, like, like I say, this is a different, different standpoint here because this is all the other laws were basically dealing with how the Israelites behaved among themselves. This law, and, and not only that, but this law uh, has the implication that if the guy on the other end who is under, it's like Pharaoh. As a matter of fact, it's exactly like Pharaoh. Uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, what God? I don't recognize your God, and I'm not letting your people go. That's exactly what he said. This is exactly that same thing. He, and, and God says, you want to bet? You know what he would say? There's no case law for this. Yeah. <laughs> He's making case law. Yeah. Pharaoh is making. Now we can go back and say, because of what happened in yeah. Egypt, we have case law. So God is basically saying, if this occurs, if this situation occurs, and the guy, the Gentile who has this Israelite slave refuses to give him up at Jubilee. I'm, I'm saying this. I'm making this up. God says, I'll back you up when you go take him. You know, you can make him give him up and I'll help you make him give him up because this is the law that I prescribed. You can do it the easy way a little or we can do it the hard way. Yeah. Okay. Thoughts on all that? Mark's got his hand up. Either that or he's got an itch. Do you have a question? So, in this passage of Leviticus 25:31 or 39, says, "If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. He is to be treated as a hard worker, 
or a temporary resident among you. And yet in Exodus 21.2, it says, If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out free without payment. Mm -hmm. Interesting how it appears that one passage is implying he shall not be a slave, and here it's saying uh, you're, if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh go free. Mm -hmm. Interesting how those two are like that, but there's got to be a harmony here. Well, yeah, the, I don't know. Are you referring to the fact that one says six years and seven goes free, and the other says year of jubilee? One is implying that, in Leviticus, is implying that he shall not work as a slave, but in Exodus 21 2, it says, if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve. Um, yeah, okay, I think I don't have too much problem with that because I think the reason it uses the word slave in, the, uh, in Leviticus, I mean, it's already gone through a great deal of trouble to talk about if you get one of your uh, fellow countrymen in this, in this way, you're not to treat him like, uh, like a, an alien. Yeah, like an alien. You don't or, treat him like a slave that you own permanently. You recognize from the beginning. I mean, because it's said several times about no hard labor and all well, this. Well, you're not, you're not to treat him the way an alien might treat other aliens. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're supposed to treat he's him differently because he's a Hebrew. Right. You're supposed yeah, to show him. He's one of your brothers, so don't beat him up. <laughs> so to make this work, then... When it says, if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve, the reader of the text already understands the, um, the, the word serve for a Hebrew laid out in Leviticus 25, verse 39, that, meaning the serving that he does shall not be of hard labor. Yeah, okay. that, that's my opinion, but it's only an opinion. The, the problem I thought you might be alluding to, which bugs me a little bit, is it says here that this person, this Hebrew, is free to go in the year of Jubilee. But yet it says in Exodus, every six years you have to let them low. And I can't, I can't quite get that one to work together in my mind. Well, so is it Jubilee or is it every six years? Maybe, maybe it's no more than, maybe what Exodus is implying that it's no more, you can't go past six years. Okay. Whatever the contract is, is whatever it is, under six years. Okay. So you could be a bond servant in Exodus for a year. Yeah. If that's what you guys want to do. Okay, but then in the, the Jubilee thing, why, why? I thought they didn't get to go until Jubilee. Oh, I see what you're saying. So I'm, I'm confused about that. But if that's the only thing I'm confused about, not but, bad. But Pat's the Jubilee only applies... That, the Jubilee is he can go back to his land. That's different there, I guess. Yeah, it is, but captives are, slaves are, get their freedom. Would it possibly be that if you were going to have him released in six years, but the, the, the Jubilee happened to come before, he could leave? That he would, that's a good point. It could definitely be that. could definitely be that. Yep, that would work. Well, this has been fun. We're at the end of the chapter, which seems like a good time to stop. Um, so any final thoughts? Go ahead, John. Just to continue on. So the six-year deal isn't tied to the calendar of the Jubilee. It's whatever whatever year happens to be. Yep. It's whatever Is year that he what starts. We're kind of suggesting, maybe? Yep, yep, yep. And, and once that contract starts, it can never go past six years. That's, that's the implication I get. I've enjoyed this. I tell you, every time I do this, I learn new stuff. 
What do you think about the idea of, of living in a society where they did this, this jubilee thing? I so, think it would be kind of fun. I like the idea, even though, like I say, when I considered the fact that I'd only get to experience it probably once in a lifetime, um, it would still be a kind of a neat thing. See, again, this is another example of edge cases. Mm -hmm. edge he, cases. He's talking about, you know, why are, first of all, you need to ask yourself, why am I in this situation where these laws apply to me? I shouldn't have gotten that position in the first place. So. You know, I've, some people get real upset at Bible because it's, it's endorsing slavery. Yeah. It's endorsing servitude. It's technically endorsing servitude. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's doing it because he knows this is who you are, and you're going to mess up, and you're going to find yourself in this situation. So we laid the rules out beforehand so you know where, what they are. Yeah. It's a form of, uh, I, think it's, I think it's merciful in a way, because he's telling you what the rules, what the limits are on this. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All of this, I've often thought that when I first got into the Torah, one of the things that made me like it, and I remember relating it to my kids, my kids were much happier when they knew where the boundaries were. Kids aren't happy when they don't know where the boundaries are. That's their sole aim in life is to figure out where the boundaries are. And so they push, and they, they push, you know, and you got to, boy, you, once you get a nice boundary established, they're happy. I think we're the same way, and these are the boundaries. Works for me. Okay, uh, one final thing before we close. Like I say, we're obviously not going to finish Leviticus tonight, but I bet we can do it tomorrow, next week, because there's only two pages left. It'll be fun, though. Interesting discussion. And then if you want to get started on the numbers, that's fine. If you don't, I'll bring them next week as well. So any other final thoughts? I'll close in prayer. Father God, thank you very much for the evening. Thanks for the discussion. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the uh, interesting implications of how it might be to live as a uh, community and establish these laws and to do these laws. Um, uh, it really seems very, uh, I don't know, inviting. Help us to think on these things as we go through the week. Help us to just uh, think on you and realize how much you love us. And just thank you so much for your Torah. Yeshua's name. Amen. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.